The proclamation of God's word can be found on page 7 of your bulletin. The sermon text reading is Matthew is wide, 18 through 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Catherine, and almost thanks to Demire and Double Scripture Reading. That's good. One of the, if you look at the list of the all-time best-selling books, the Bible is, is, is far and away, you know, by far the best all-time best-selling book. Books two, three, and four are, are texts from other Eastern religions. Uh, this surprised me. Book number five was the Book of Common Prayer, which is the book that is used by the Anglican Church for their church liturgy. And then also surprisingly, so this is ahead of Lord of the Rings, this is ahead of Harry Potter, The Pilgrim's Progress, written by the Puritan John Bunyan, is number six. So if if you have not read The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, you are missing out. It is an allegory concerning the Christian life. The main character in The Pilgrim's Progress is a man named Christian, and Christian is going to start the journey, the journey of the narrow road to arrive one day at the celestial city, that this heavenly home, the straight and narrow road in front of him. And on Christian's journey along this narrow road, he is going to meet all sorts of characters, some that are helpful, some that are not helpful, that are either going to keep him on the narrow road or going to tempt him to lead off. So a few of the, the bad characters are pliable, hypocrite. They try and have Christian take a detour. But then he's also going to meet some good individuals, one being Mr. Goodwill. This is what Goodwill says. He says, look before thee, Christian. Do you see the narrow way? That is the way you must go. It was cast up by the patriarchs, prophets, Christ, and his apostles. And it is as straight as a rule can make it. This is the way you must go. Christian responds by saying, are there no turnings nor windings by which a stranger may lose his way. And Goodwill says, yes, there are many ways down upon this road, and they are crooked and they are wide, but you must distinguish the right from the wrong and the right only being the straight and narrow. So here, here's what Goodwill means. That the, the Christian life, as we just heard read, from Matthew chapter 7, is a straight road to the heavenly city. Now that, that sounds easy enough, just, just eyes fixed on heaven, just keep moving one step at a time down this narrow road, but the reality is, is that it's actually very difficult. Other, there are plenty of ways that we can leave this narrow road. There are other paths, there are other ways that seem easier, or perhaps a, de- a detour or a shortcut. There are plenty of other options in life. But the reality is that there is only one road that is going to lead towards our heavenly home. So whether you are just beginning your Christian journey or whether you've been on the path for a number of years and you are almost to the finish line, you need to recognize that there are all sorts of voices and vices that want you to jump off the road. And therefore... As Christians, we need the disciplines to help us stay on this narrow path. 
We are in a, a mini-series before we ramp up a different book for this summer. We're in a mini-series, and we are looking at what goes into being a healthy church. And for this morning, one of the marks of a healthy church is a healthy church provides the discipline to help its people stay on the narrow road. I've mentioned this before, but during the, the Protestant Reformation, there were three marks, three sort of distinguishing marks that the Protestant reformers came up with to define what is a true church. Mark number one, a true church preaches the Word of God correctly. Mark number two, a true church administers the sacraments in accordance with God's Word. And then third and finally, a true church practices church discipline. Now, challenge is that when most of us hear that final mark, church discipline, we initially think of it just in terms of the negative. And so when our, our youngest child, Kate, she's a year and a half, if she's going to touch an outlet or she's going to reach her, her hand up to touch the hot stove, Vanessa or I will, will discipline her. We'll, we'll give her a little slap on the wrist or a little slap on her, her thigh. We'll say, Kate, no, do not touch. She needs to be disciplined to learn what the danger is. And that's initially how we think of church discipline, just sort of church spanking, just whenever I do something bad, the church didn't come down on me. And in a sense, that's partially true, but that's really only half the definition. And my goal for you this morning is that you would think of discipline in a positive sense, that in love, God has set up these means to keep you moving forward on this narrow path. The word discipline comes from the Latin word disciplus, which is to become a student, to become a disciple. Discipline, disciple, even with our, our English ears, we, we recognize, well, those look very similar. So the overarching goal of discipline is, is, is not to punish, it's not to shame, it's not to make people feel bad about themselves. No, the overarching goal of discipline is to help you stay on the narrow path of helping you become a student, to a disciple of Jesus Christ. It is actually a grace to you. It is one of the means that God keeps you on this narrow path. And for that to happen, it is true that sometimes God's people do need to be warned. There are going to be times when we drift off the path, and so we need the church or we need our friends or our family to step in and say, hey, you're off the path. You need to get back on. But there's also a different sense of church discipline. It's the discipline of just staying on the path. When we think of people that are, are very gifted in a certain vocation, one of the key characteristics of defining a real specialist is that they are disciplined in their craft. So think of a, a professional athlete, very disciplined to exercise, to eat right. Think of a surgeon, very disciplined to, to study and pay close attention to detail. An author is disciplined to, to, to craft language and to edit and constant revisions. And so discipline is not just, hey, get back on the path. There's also the discipline of just moving forward on the path. And so essentially, there are two sides of discipline. There's the warning for those that have fallen off to get back on. And then there is also the encouragement for those that are on just to keep moving forward. 
So those two aspects are going to be our two points for this morning. The two aspects of church discipline. Number one, discipline is a warning to those that have drifted from the narrow road. The number two, discipline as the encouragement to stay on the narrow road. After those two points, we'll close with two applications. So number one, first, the discipline of warning. There are times when we drift off the road and we need to be warned. Again, that is not a curse, that is actually a blessing. If you were to look at all of the New Testament letters, the church that needed to be warned the most was the church of Corinth. If you look at 1 Corinthians, you quickly realize this church has some issues. The church was very divided. They were sexually immoral. They were arrogant. They abused the Lord's table. And they actually had lawsuits against one another. And so there, there's just a lot going on in Corinth. And what this church needed was discipline. They needed a strong warning from Paul. They needed to be disciplined so they might hear it, so they might return to the straight to narrow road of the Christian life. And that's essentially what 1 Corinthians is in a nutshell. Now what's helpful to realize is because we think of church discipline, especially the, the warning side, and we just sort of have one tone for it. What's helpful is when you look at 1 Corinthians, you see that there's, there's different warnings that come with different tones. Think of a husband and wife. They're just having typical marriage struggles. You might need to, to discipline them with a, a quick word of encouragement or a quick word of, hey, you need to forgive, you need to love, you need to, to sacrifice. But that's very different than a man who is living in the stubborn sin of adultery. See, in 1 Corinthians, there's actually a man who is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, when that kind of sin happens, there needs to be the strong warning that this church needs to remove this man from their fellowship. And so a healthy church has the different categories of how to apply tone and severity as appropriately needed. But of course, all of it does culminate in excommunication. That's what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. An unrepentant person needs the discipline of being removed from God's body. And hopefully the removal creates something in that individual that says, I miss it. I miss the Lord. I miss the church. Help me to come back to him. So even at that point, it's not simply to punish, but it is hopefully restorative. One of the great problems in the church today is that there are very few churches that are practicing corrective church discipline. I think it's because the church has just become so obsessed with, with numbers, and just simply we need to grow at all times, and we always want people to feel comfortable. What we see is that if you're not willing to discipline it's going to be very easy to get off the narrow road. And we are actually robbing people of a grace that might help them press on and get back onto this narrow path. Corrective church discipline. You look at the church in Corinth and it's, it's pretty obvious that there needs to be some strong warnings to them. But what's also very interesting is if you go through 1 Corinthians Paul is not just blasting these people for all their sin. He actually says at the very beginning of the letter that he's, he's thankful for them. 
He calls them brothers. He recognizes that these are Christians that are dealing with sin. In chapter 4, 14, he writes that he is not writing to shame them. So, so church discipline is not just, just blasting, you know, from the pulpit how terrible people are, but it's a genuine concern for God's people to stay on the narrow road. There's actually, if, if there's a danger of, of never disciplining, there's also the opposite danger of a church that's hyper-focused and always disciplining, of trying to weed out every possible sin. And if you become a church like that, then you're actually going to ruin the good work of the gospel. In Matthew's gospel account, there's the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And in this parable, there's a farmer, he has his, his field, it's full of wheat, and in the middle of the night, there's an enemy. He goes out and he starts scattering his, his seeds of uh, weeds. Think of something that might be just really wants to mess with you. So he goes to your beautiful green lawn and just plants dandelions all over. That's this, this poor farmer. His field is full of weeds. Now, is, would it be appropriate for this farmer to go out and, and pull some of the weeds? Yeah, I think, yes, that'd be appropriate. But what the parable says is that if this farmer is overzealous to get rid of every single weed, what is going to happen is that he is eventually going to begin to pull up some of the good wheat. He's actually going to ruin some of the good work that is actually happening. So a church needs to exercise church discipline, but we also need to recognize that we're all sinners, that we're all struggling, and if we are so overzealous to try and remove every single sin, eventually we are going to crush God's people and the work of the gospel is going to be hindered. So we need to be very correct, uh, careful in the use of church discipline. But just because it can be abused does not mean that we should not be committed to it. Now I can imagine some people, especially if this topic is, is somewhat new to them, they might ask, how is church discipline, especially the, the kind of discipline that, that's, that's warning, full of exhortation, how is it not just moralism? You know, as, as Protestants, and especially Reformed Protestants, we affirm, it's, it's foundational to our, our beliefs that we are saved by grace alone. There's nothing in us, nothing in our external lives, nothing in our morality that earns or merits grace that even our growth in grace does not earn favor from God. It is all God's grace. Whenever somebody repents and turns to Jesus, there will always be grace. So it's a, it's a really good question. Why is church corrective discipline not just moralism? How are we not just saying, if you just clean up your life on the outside, stop cheating, stop drinking, just get your life together, then you'll be welcomed back in the church. How is that not just moralism? I find this to be very helpful. In the Presbyterian Church of America's Book of Church Order, which I recognize you're not going to read. It, it, it's very boring. The only people that like it are lawyers. But, but in this very big, boring book, it lays out the levels of church discipline, with the final level being that of excommunication. Excommunication would be when the church says that you are removed from the visible membership of the church. What's very interesting, though, is that there is only one sin 
that qualifies for excommunication. And it is the sin of being contumacious. Again, I recognize that's a very Presbyterian word that nobody else uses, but what contumacious means is stubbornness. So, so theologically, contumacious is the stubbornness of the heart. It is the refusal of the heart to repent and come back to Jesus. You see, every other sin can be forgiven as long as you come back to Jesus. So you can be a cheating, murdering, terrorist, drug lord. I mean, all of that can be forgiven by Jesus as long as you actually come to Jesus. All, all the sins that are likely present here in this room this morning, pornography, disobeying your parents, your proud, self-righteous heart, the abuse of alcohol, the abuse of other substances, that the list would go on and on. All of that is quickly and easily forgiven as long as you turn back to Jesus. One of my favorite lines, we say it often during the time of confession, that there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in us. The narrow path of the Christian life is a path of constantly repenting, constantly turning back to Jesus. Therefore, the only sin that disqualifies you from church membership, and this is what is meant by the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is the refusal to come back to Jesus. You can't be forgiven and made new by Jesus unless you're going to Jesus. This is the sin of being contumacious. That's the only sin, the only sin that can remove you from the church. And you see, that's why church discipline is not just empty moralism of just fruit of exceeding up your life. Corrective discipline, it, it sees the fruit of your life. The fruit of your life gives us evidences to, that allow us to probe your heart. But the ultimate pleading of the church in discipline is not just fix up your life, but keep your heart soft before the Lord. Trust Jesus. Obey Jesus. Repent as necessary. Come back to Jesus. You see, discipline is always concerned with you having a soft heart before the Lord. Are you going to mess up? Absolutely. And therefore, have a soft heart to, to, to own where you messed up. Don't blame others. Don't blame your dad. Don't blame your wife. It's your fault. Before the Lord, you're the one that sinned. And church discipline is concerned with, are you able to own your sin and stay soft before the Lord? That was church corrective discipline. Now to the second aspect of church discipline. This is the discipline that helps you stay on the narrow path. There are going to be times in life when you fall off and you need to be corrected, you need to get back on. And there's also going to be seasons of life where you're, just, you're moving ahead and you need the strength, the discipline to keep moving forward. I mentioned last week the, the passing of Tim Keller. Tim Keller was the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York. And three years ago, when news of Tim Keller's cancer came back, he was on a podcast and the, the pod caster, who, who, whatever you call the, the one who runs the podcast, asked the question of Tim Keller, Tim, now that you're facing death, does, does hope in the resurrection just kick in? Just, you don't have it, but then when you're finally forced with this grim reality, does it just automatically kick in? And Tim's answer from his own experience was no. It, it, it's there, 
but doesn't just automatically get turned on. You're on the narrow path, but you need something more to propel you forward to this celestial city. The grace needs to be turned on. Tim Keller went on to say that hope is turned on through the discipline of ordinary means of grace ministry. We, we say that phrase sometimes here at Redeemer. And here's what Tim Keller meant by ordinary means of grace ministry. See, the, God, the way in which God ordinarily works, the way that God ordinarily keeps His people on the straight and narrow road is ordinary grace ministry, which means God ordinarily works through ordinary means. The primary means of ordinary grace ministry is what we're doing this morning, coming to church, there's sermons, there's sacraments, and there's praying. And in that, God is using those graces as means to keep you on the narrow path. And then throughout the week, there are the other Christian disciplines, doing life together with other Christian believers, developing your own personal prayer life, studying the Bible on your own. There's nothing fancy about ordinary means of grace ministry. There's nothing over the top. There's nothing rah-rah. There's nothing flashy. But when you consistently apply the disciplines of these ordinary means, God uses that as the means to keep His people on the narrow road headed in the right direction. You see, a a, a true disciple, a true disciplined Christian is not looking for an easy, quick fix. The the road to the heavenly city, it is not a 100-yard dash. Just get on it, sprint as hard as you can for a week, and then you get there. No, it typically is a long, slow journey. So a true student is committed to the slow and steady discipline of Christian growth. For this second aspect of church discipline, this what we might call formative discipleship, think of it as the difference between a fad diet versus actually becoming a healthy person. And any medical doctor, any health expert will tell you that the very best way to become healthy is just to be committed to health over a long period of time. Work out, eat healthy, avoid junk food, sleep well, might not make a difference immediately, but over the the long stretch of your life, you will become healthy. You see, disciplined health is very different than a fad diet. When I was growing up, I I remember dad, it, it seemed like once a year, my dad realized he needed to lose some weight. And so he would go on these different fad diets. I don't know where he learned about these diets, but they were, they were, they were very odd, just very unusual diets. I, I think he might have just thought of them on his own. I remember two in particular as being especially odd. The first is when I was very little, and uh, my dad would only eat watermelon. I mean, just 24-7, only watermelon. I remember my, my poor mother, this is when we were living in Kentucky, it was during the summer, it's very hot. So my, my poor mom every single day had to carry in all these watermelons for my dad. And so that's all my dad ate was watermelon. So the, the fad back in the 90s was no matter what, 
don't eat fat. You can eat anything besides fat. And so he just lived on watermelons. But then the 90s ended, and then we get to the 2000s, and the new fad is you can eat a lot of fat, but no matter what, you can't have carbs. So my dad's new fad diet was he only ate cheese. And so it was, again, very, very unusual. I'm not sure where he got this idea, but 24-7, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snack, on the way to work, just cheese. It's some weird twist on the Atkins diet. It was very gross, very embarrassing for me as a high schooler to have my dad on a cheese diet. Now, now, in a sense, you might say that these diets actually worked. If, if you only eat watermelon or if you only eat cheese, you will lose some weight. And my dad lost some weight, and he actually lost the weight fairly quickly. But the truth is, a cheese diet is not sustainable. Eventually, you need to eat something else. Eventually, you need some protein or you do need some carbs. And so the weight always would come back for my dad. You see, quick fixes are not sustainable. And even if you were determined to only eat cheese for the rest of your life, I, I would just guess you're going to have a whole other list of other issues that would arise. Americans, for our health, we want quick fixes and Often that is what Christians want as well. Just quick spiritual fixes. Just give me a three-step program. Let me go on this one retreat and then I'll be forever sanctified. Instead, what we need is the disciplines of the ordinary means of grace. Slow and steady. The Christian path towards our heavenly home is a long journey. It's a long path. A very well-known book by Eugene Peterson. It's titled, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Just, just the title is worth the book. And healthy disciplines keep you on that long journey, that long obedience that our God direction. Church on Sunday morning, the disciplines throughout the week, all of that are God's way of giving you the fuel, giving you the energy, giving you the guardrails to keep you moving forward on this heavenly journey. So two aspects of church discipline. The first warns those that have fallen off the path to get back on. The second encourages those that are on the path to keep moving forward. And a healthy church is committed to both. Because we are committed, like we saw last week, to making disciples, to making students of Jesus, if you are absolutely committed to that as your primary mission— then you need to be committed to the disciplines of actually making these disciples. Those are the two points, two applications coming off of the two points. Application number one. When it comes to church discipline, especially the corrective church discipline, the kind of discipline that warns those that are drifting, here's the simple application. Do not be contumacious. Be the kind of person that is committed to hearing what you actually need to hear. It's easy to say that now, but there's going to be a moment in your life when you do something wrong and you need to humble and firm in your heart now that you are going to be the kind of person that is humble enough to actually be corrected. 
See, what the gospel says is that while we are saved, we're still sinful. That yes, we're on the path towards the heavenly city, but we are prone to wandering. Think of the very well-known hymn, prone to wandering, Lord, I in fact do feel it. We are prone to wandering. All of us are still sinners. We have weaknesses and we have sin tendencies that are going to cause us to get off this narrow road. And therefore, we need to surround ourselves with a church and we need to surround ourselves with friends and we need to surround ourselves with family members that are going to help us get back on the path. You are going to drift. Therefore, be humble enough that when you drift, you actually listen to what others are saying. You heed their advice and you're soft enough to get back onto the narrow road. You see, most people today have just a very fragile sense of identity. And so therefore, if you have a very fragile sense of yourself, you are going to surround yourself with people that only affirm. People that are very insecure, that their community, that their church is full of universal yes men and yes women. What I mean by a yes man or a yes life, just somebody that no matter what is going to universally affirm every decision you make in life. Yeah, that's a, that's a great person to date. That's a great job to take. Yes, your, your lifestyle and what you're doing on Friday nights. Yeah, it's, it's all fine. No matter what, I'm just going to make you feel good about yourself. What you need is to be more mature, more secure in Jesus, and you need to surround yourselves with people that are willing not just to say yes, but on occasion, you need friends and you need a church that is willing, because they love you, to say, brother, sister, I, I, I love you, and that is not a God-honoring way to live. And then, and then you, because you're humble, you're not offended, you don't blow them off, you don't say, well, you're just self-righteous and arrogant, you're not shattered, but you actually listen to their counsel. You see, the gospel says that you are more sinful than you ever dared to think, that that sin is total in its extent in your body. Sin impacts how you think, how you feel, how you worship. It's, it's all over you, Sin. And part of the danger of sin is that we often don't see sin in our own lives. Therefore, we need other people to see outside of us. We have our sin blind spots. And so therefore, we need the community of God's people to help us see what we can't see for ourselves. Think of sin as, it's like having a big piece of, of parsley just stuck in your teeth. You, you can't see it. And you're all dressed up, you're looking good, and you go into the big important business meeting, you're just flashing your pearly whites, and everyone else can see you got a giant leaf stuck right in your teeth. In that moment, you can't see it for yourself, and so you need somebody that actually loves you enough to say, hey, get that leaf out of your teeth. That's what we need as Christians. We need a community of church members, of people, family, friends that are able to tell us what we can't see for ourselves. And then the gospel says that while you are, yes, sinful, you are also loved in Jesus. So therefore, when somebody tells us something about our sinful tendencies, that's actually God's way of loving us. 
They would all say it's a very loving thing to tell somebody they have partially stuck in their teeth before an important meeting. That's not punishment. That's actually a discipline. That's God's way of, of loving you. When a, a church member or a family or friend says, brother, sister, the, what you are doing is not honoring to God. I exhort you, I encourage you to get back onto the narrow road. That is God's love for you. It's his way of getting you back onto the narrow road that is full of love and joy and peace and hope. It's not out to get you. The, the warnings of scriptures and the warnings of God's people are actually a grace that God uses to get you to heaven. So application number one, receive. Application number two. This is focusing now on the second kind of discipline that is to press on in our daily lives. Like a disciplined professional athlete that states, stays focused, eats the right food, works out on a daily basis, commit yourself to the proactive disciplines, the ordinary means that God has given to us. Now, I recognize that I'm preaching to the choir here this morning because this is Memorial Day weekend and the weather is finally nice and you all are at church. So I'm preaching to the choir here. Maybe those that listen on live stream or in the sermon recording will be convicted. But Sunday morning here at Redeemer is the primary discipline that is going to help you stay on the narrow road. When God ministers to his people on Sunday morning in the context of worship, as you hear the word preached, and as you partake in the word and the sacraments, as we sing, as we do life together, and we confess ourselves, all, all of that, the, the package of Sunday morning worship, that is God disciplining you. That is God giving you the guardrails. That is God reminding you not to do a U-turn, not to take a detour, not to take the windy trail off the side. All of that is God's way of keeping you, disciplining you, to keep you on the narrow path that is headed towards the heavenly city. Now, yes, there, there are, of course, reasons to miss church. If your kids are puking, please do not come to church. Stay home. You can listen to the sermon later. If you are a civil servant, so you're, you're a doctor, or you're working with the, the fire department, there are reasons to miss church. But generally speaking, the primary way that God wants to discipline you, a professional athlete, then as a Christian, is through what we are doing this morning. Like a professional athlete that needs to work out to be disciplined for his or her craft, so on Sunday morning, God is disciplining you through these ordinary means to keep you moving forward. Now, Sunday morning, if that is the main discipline, we are not expecting that the discipline of Sunday morning worship, that, that every week is going to be this you know, mountaintop experience. I, I, I recognize, I'm very aware that the vast majority of my sermons and the vast majority of Sundays are not going to be remembered. That, that's not the goal for this week. The goal for this morning is to give you enough spiritual food, enough grace to sustain you, to discipline you throughout the week so that you might just come back next Sunday to get another meal to move on. I heard John Piper say once, think of Sunday morning like a, a family meal. The vast majority of the meals that you have eaten in your life, you don't remember. Yes, you, you remember a few Thanksgivings or a Christmas, or perhaps there was a, a really great 
birthday dinner you had downtown, you might remember a few meals, but the vast majority of the meals that you have partook in, you don't remember. They didn't even change your life. But the glory of that very average, simple, ordinary meal is that it gave you the nourishment for the moment so that you might keep pressing on. That's what Sunday morning is. Just a little bit of spiritual food, not to change your life forever. Again, this is no quick fix. It's not a 100-yard dash. The Sunday morning is to give you enough food just to simply get you through the week. So commit yourself to the discipline of corporate worship on Sunday morning. And then on top of that, this would be the, the cherry on top of the Sunday. Commit yourself to the other spiritual disciplines throughout the work, throughout the week. Develop Christian community that you can interact with. Read the Bible. I mean, there's a plethora of, of Bible reading plans. There's apps now. There's sermons that you can download. There's podcasts you can listen to. There's, there's so many different ways to help you know the Bible better. Develop a personal prayer life. Again, there's so many resources now with podcasts and, and plans and all different things throughout the week that you can do that don't replace the primary ministry of what happens on Sunday morning. But as, as a cherry on top are wonderful disciplines, all of which are helping you stay on the narrow path. Disciplines will not save you. It is Jesus alone who saves it is the cross alone that has purchased redemption for us. It is the blood of Jesus that makes us clean. It is the grace of Jesus that gets us onto the narrow path. And so healthy church discipline is not about how we can save people. Healthy church discipline is not our evangelistic strategy. No, healthy church discipline is simply to be like Christian in the pilgrim's progress. We're all on this path we're all headed to heaven. We recognize that there are a number of ways that we can get off. So therefore, we're committed to being warned. We also recognize it's a very long journey. And so we need some food. We need some energy, some nourishment to press on. So therefore, we receive the disciplines of staying on the path. Healthy churches provide church discipline. Discipline that both warns and sustains so that we might, all of us, by God's grace, stay on the narrow path that is headed towards the eternal city. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you that you love us enough to discipline. Certainly you could just save us and then just let us go on our own. But if that were the case, then we recognize that we would all fall off the road very quickly. So we thank you that in your love, you have designed various measures and various means all as a way of keeping us on this very straight and narrow road. Father, I do pray in all the right ways, without being pharisaical, without being hypocritical, I pray that would Redeemer would be a disciplined church, that we'd be willing to be corrected as needed and that we'd be disciplined enough to commit ourselves to things that you have given us for our spiritual nourishment and growth and grace. Father, help us not to be lazy. Help us to be disciplined, all for the sake of Jesus. Amen.